This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Welcome to the Science Podcast for August 18, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Daniel Apa'i talks with us about a detailed study of brown dwarf atmospheres and what the bands, beads, and spots observed in brown dwarfs can tell us about exoplanets. And David Grimm is here with this week's hits from our online news site. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. Okay, Dave, first up, we have a story on a big jump in knee pain. <laughs> According to new research, the number of people with arthritis in their knees has doubled since 1940. This is something people tend to get when they're older, right? Yeah, it typically develops after 45 years of age. And actually, right now, about 20% of people in the U.S. have knee osteoarthritis. And what is knee osteoarthritis Well, exactly? it's basically the, the cartilage in the knee joint breaks down and it hurts. <laughs> okay. um, it sucks. <laughs> and so this idea that it's doubled since 1940, how do we know who had um, osteoarthritis in 1940? Well, we have to look at a bunch of skeletons, actually 2,500 skeletons researchers looked at in this study. And some of them are from the U.S., actually 1,600 about, belong to people who died between 1905 and 1940. Another 800 or so are from people from 1976 to 2015. And then there's almost 200 from Native Americans who lived between 300 and 6,000 years ago. What kind of signs do we see on their skeleton? Well, the researchers look for these smooth patches that form when cartilage and knee joints erodes. And this allows the upper and lower leg bones to grind against one another. And it creates this really kind of polished surface. And the researchers can actually see that on the skeletons. And the rates were much lower in the past. What are they now? And what were they in 1940? So in 1940, the rates of new osteoarthritis were about 6% versus close to 20% today. Okay, I'm going to guess a couple reasons this might be going on. Uh, different diet these days, and people live a lot longer. Could either of these be the real the reason behind these? Well, age was, age was certainly something they were thinking about. You know, people are living longer, so maybe we're just more prone to develop these kinds of diseases. Diet or weight, you know, we're a lot heavier than we were in the past, and maybe that's putting extra pressure on the legs. But neither of those actually seems to be the case. When the researchers controlled for both those factors, they still saw this increase in knee osteoarthritis, which means something else must be going on. And what do they speculate that might be? They think it might be inactivity. Believe it or not, Sarah, we spend a lot more time <laughs> sitting down than we did in the past. That's not just because we have computers, but also things like smartphones and video games, cars. a lot of those cars, a lot of other things that are keeping us off our feet, and maybe that's the root cause. And all this suggests that just changing our diet, just trying to lose weight, isn't necessarily going to solve the problem. Now we have a story on the upcoming solar eclipse. I hope you aren't feeling Wait, too... there's an eclipse coming, Sarah? <laughs> I know, right? I hope you're not feeling too swamped <laughs> with eclipse information. What could we possibly add 
to this pile of media coverage. <laughs> what do we have that's new, Dave? Well, what we did was we, we sort of looked back a little bit in history and we tried to figure out, well, what have scientists learned in the past from eclipses? Because to be honest, we're not learning a ton from eclipses these days. But there have been some really important things we've learned in the past and there have been some wild goose chases we've gone on as well as with regards to eclipses. Okay, well, let's do two legits and one non-legit right. uh, finding. Let's talk about estimating the distance to the moon from the Earth. Right. So for hundreds of years, for a long, long time, astronomers were trying to figure out how far the Earth is from the moon. Around 150 BCE, a Greek astronomer named Hipparchus of Nicaea came up with what he thought was a pretty ingenious way of figuring out the distance. He learned that in northwestern Turkey, one could see the moon perfectly aligning with the sun during the eclipse. But in Alexandria, Egypt, about 1,000 kilometers away, only 80% of the sun was blocked. And then he basically just used simple trigonometry to calculate the distance between Earth and the moon. Now, he wasn't exactly right. He was about 20% off, but pretty impressive for that long ago. Definitely. Okay. And my favorite um, eclipse historical finding is from the 1919 eclipse. Just some early proof for Einstein's <laughs> for Einstein's theory of general relativity, you know? What part of the theory predicted that an object's gravitational field would produce a slight warp in the path of oncoming light? And as a result, a ray of starlight passing near the sun would bend a tiny bit. Now, this is really hard to see when the sun is in full bloom. But during the eclipse of that year, an English astrophysicist took pictures of a cluster of stars in the region of the sun. And he was able to confirm Einstein's theory because he did see uh, this bending of starlight. Okay, so those are the two findings. We talked about one maybe non-legit finding. So why don't you tell us something that scientists thought they found through an eclipse, but they didn't? Well, so my favorite is the quote-unquote discovery of the moon's atmosphere. In the 1600s, in the early 1600s, scientists suggested that the bright aura surrounding the sun, which you could see during a solar eclipse, was actually the moon's atmosphere, and they wanted to study that. The problem is, is that the moon doesn't actually have an atmosphere, and actually what they were seeing was the sun's corona, which was shown a couple hundred years later. Last up, we have some Viking news. Dave, what do you know about Vikings? They sailed around. They attack things. What they else had cats got? on their ships. Okay, I knew you were going to say that. They did have cats on their ships. Did you know that they built fortresses? I did not. And even the people that live in what used to be Viking territories today didn't even think their own Viking ancestors were capable of building these fortresses when they started to crop up uh, around the 1930s when archaeologists started to discover them. And where have they been found so far? They've been found all around Denmark. And the newest one is also in Denmark. It's on the Danish. Danish island of Zealand, which is south of Copenhagen. The, so should I ask how they found it or how they missed it? Well, they're both good questions. These are really big things. The fortress in question in this case was a perfect circle, 144 meters across. It had four main gates crisscrossed by wood paved roads. There were outer ramparts that were built from earth and timber, and not all that is left. Yeah. But this is a really big structure. And so how did they miss it? And, and the, the problem is that these things are a thou more than 1,000 years old. So you're talking about land that's been developed and developed and developed over time. And also, it's just even with a simple aerial survey, it's really hard to see these things. And so the researchers turned to something called LIDAR, which uses lasers to create these really high-resolution 
three-dimensional maps of the ground, and that's when this thing popped up. And so when do they think it was built, this one? They think this thing was built in the Middle Ages, sometime between the 970s and the 980s. And what did they need a fortress for, Dave? Well, uh, these were Vikings. They uh, were constantly attacking and being attacked, so they needed to protect themselves. But what's kind of interesting about this fortress, and probably of all these fortresses, is that besides how well-built they were, they actually seem to be not just made for warfare. Researchers have found families buried there, women, children, suggesting that these fortresses were so imposing that they were almost there so the Vikings wouldn't have to worry about being attacked, that somebody would come, an invader would come and go, I'm not going to mess with that thing and leave the Vikings alone. And that would allow them to turn these things into sort of more of a peaceful sort of regular living situation than something that they always had to sort of be on uh, the defensive with. Okay. And we're not going to end this discussion without talking about Bluetooth. Right. So (laughs) so one of the questions is who built these things or who ordered that they be built? And at least with this particular fortress, it appears that the person in charge was a very famous Viking king named Harold Bluetooth. Uh, His father was the first ruler of the Danish kingdom. Harold was actually famous. It was actually very famous for uniting dissonant Danish tribes into a single kingdom. And according to legend, introducing Christianity as well. But perhaps most famous today for lending his name to Bluetooth technology. Yes, (laughs) King Harold Bluetooth is actually where we get the name Bluetooth from. Okay. What else is on the site? (laughs) (laughs) Well, so we've got a story about why Zika has disappeared in the Americas and where it might crop up next. Also a story about a new dinosaur that may or may not shake up the dinosaur family tree. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about what an MIT professor gave up to become an astronaut. Also a story about why Americans are becoming more comfortable with human gene editing technology. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. This week's episode is brought to you by Hackable, a new podcast from McAfee. These days, we are so plugged in that everything we do is digital. Social media, email, banking, Our identities are really online now. So how worried should we be about the threat of a possible cyber attack? Hackable explores this very question with the help of cybersecurity experts, in-depth experiments, and of course, pop culture. The pilot episode, for example, attempts to replicate the opening scene of Mr. Robot, where the main character easily taps into a coffee shop's Wi-Fi network and uncovers some unnerving secrets. It's like Mythbusters meets Mr. Robot. The podcast is incredibly entertaining, informative, and applicable to anyone who spends a lot of time online, which, to be honest, these days is pretty much all of us. You'll definitely learn a thing or two about the realities of your cybersecurity. Listen to Hackable in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. A study this week by Daniel Apa'i and colleagues uses the Spitzer Space Telescope to spy on the atmospheres of nearby brown dwarfs. Daniel's here to talk us through the spots, bands, and beats that they found. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you, sir. I'm glad to be here. Let's just start with the basics. What is a brown dwarf? Is it a super small star or a giant gas giant planet? So a brown dwarf is really in between a star and a planet. 
Uh, they are smaller than a star. They don't have the central pressure and temperature needed to drive fusion uh, like stars do. So they don't have an energy source. Uh, in that respect, they are similar to planets, but they are larger. Most brown dwarfs have 10, 20, or 30 Jupiter masses, or even more. So like 30 times the size of Jupiter, 100 times the size of Jupiter, and you're still a brown dwarf? Uh, up to about 80 Jupiter okay. masses. You reach a critical mass above which you become a small star. Okay, and let's get into the, just some of the interesting characteristics of these guys. Brown dwarfs, are they hot? Are they hot like a sun? Are they ambient temperature like Earth? What What temperature are they? So they really start hot, typically cooler than the sun, mm-hmm. around like a red dwarf star, a few thousand Kelvin. And because they don't have an energy source, they gradually faint away and they cool down. So most of the brown dwarfs that we know are actually quite cold, around a thousand Kelvin. But most of the brown dwarfs in the universe are probably too cold for us to see. So there must be many, many other brown dwarfs out there that are too faint for us to see. One other thing about brown dwarfs, uh, are they brown? They are not brown. <laughs> Mostly they are red or purplish. In most cases, we cannot see them at visible wavelength. Okay, well, when you say we can't see them, you mean that we, we can't, there's no uh, visible light emanating from them, but other stuff is coming off of them that we can use certain instruments to detect, right? That's right. So we can see them in the very red light and especially in the infrared light mm-hmm. because they are very cold. They emit at longer wavelengths. So we need very sensitive telescopes to detect them. Pretty much we use infrared emission, just like heat vision, to detect them. And in this particular study, we use the Spitzer Space Telescope, which is an infrared space telescope designed to be very sensitive. And we were able to study brown dwarfs that are relatively nearby. How many brown dwarfs were you able to record from and, and where are they in space? We aimed at brown dwarfs that are relatively nearby. So that's typically about 15 to 60 light years away. Uh, we selected a relatively small number, only six brown dwarfs. And uh, in this particular study, we focused on three of them. What is special about our study, though, is that we did not only simply observe them once, but we followed each brown dwarf for more than a year. We revisited them many times, eight times, and we watched them spin around and recorded their brightness variations. Okay. And what you saw when you were looking at these brightness variations, you saw bands, you saw spots, and you saw beats. What does it mean that there's this, it sounds kind of like a predictable variation in their atmospheres? That's right. So we were curious to understand how clouds in these atmospheres behave. So we don't have a brown dwarf in the solar system, fortunately. (laughs) We are very interested in figuring out the properties of these atmospheres. They are very interesting because they have clouds uh, made of silicate, uh, fine silicate dust, and they have clouds presumably made of iron, liquid iron droplets. So we want to understand how these clouds form, how they evolve, because they have a fundamental impact on their atmospheres, just like Earth's clouds uh, impact our atmospheres. We use these rotational brightness variations to figure out which part of the brown dwarf is brighter, uh, which is uh, fainter. We could figure out that the fainter parts have thicker clouds. So as they rotate around, whenever a brighter patch comes to the visible hemisphere, we see an overbrightening of the source. We know that the cloud cover is thinner there. So we were able to monitor these objects. We were able to see how the cloud cover is changing. And in this paper, we report a new model that explains all the changes we see with a banded structure in which also spots are rotating around uh, the brown dwarf. Are these bands and spots kind of like what we see on Jupiter? So in Jupiter, most of the changes we see come from the great red spot, which has been around for 300 years. 
in addition to the great red spot, we see a banded structure. Neptune is different. It doesn't have a great red spot. And in fact, clouds in the bands that rotate with different speeds are giving the brightness variations. We expected the brown dwarfs to be similar to Jupiter in a sense that the changes come from the great red spot-like structures, which are roughly the size of Earth. Uh, the puzzle was that we have seen very rapid changes. These light curves that we have obtained, they were changing from a day to day very significantly. And so we were surprised because we initially thought that these structures, size of Earth, would be developing from one day to the next. And instead, what we realized is that the structures are not appearing or disappearing. Instead, we are seeing large waves that travel around the brown dwarf, changing the cloud thickness. Hmm. When you say you, you, know, you observe them over the course of several days, uh, a number of them, and then you revisited them over the years, and then each observation period was several days in length? So we spent more than 1,100 hours with the Spitzer Space Telescope on this relatively small sample of brown dwarf. So this was a very large program. We visited each brown dwarf eight times, and in each visit, we watched them rotate four times. So it's four days in a brown dwarf's time, but typically these observations ranged in between six hours to about 50 hours. Mm -hmm. Depending on how long it takes for it to turn around? That's exactly right. We wanted to observe very rapidly rotating brown dwarfs, as well as very slowly rotating brown dwarfs to compare the differences in their atmospheric structures. The large anticyclonic feature that we see in Jupiter, the Great Red Spot, is one of the expectations we set out with. We thought there was a hypothesis that we would see those being common, but instead we see more Neptune-like circulation bands with waves uh, turning around. You did enough of these observations, you know, across these brown dwarfs to be able to make a model that accounted for it. When you come back to our solar system and look at the gas giants, what, what can we learn now that we have a model of brown dwarfs? Actually, it turns out that even for Jupiter, Uranus, and Neptune, we don't have a really good understanding of what drives atmospheric circulation. So by comparing brown dwarfs, which we these are just the first studies that allow us to study atmospheric circulation, to the solar system planets, we can basically see how Jupiter would behave if it would be a bit hotter and a bit more massive. So that comparative study is very important. It also is very important that we can compare these brown dwarfs to exoplanets. So that was one of the drivers of our studies. We want to understand exoplanet atmospheres. Circulation is very important. Heat exchange in different layers of the exoplanet atmospheres are very important between a day side and night side. So in general, in the field, we are trying to develop circulation models for exoplanets. And brown dwarfs, not having a host star, provide very similar atmospheres that are easier to observe. Uh, because you don't have a contrast problem. Oh, because a host star would be very bright and kind of swamp out any, you know, That's any, exactly any right. of the signal. Okay. Wow. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you, Sarah. It was a pleasure. Daniel Apae writes about brown dwarf beets this week in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, Write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.